plastic has been incorporated into the background of our lives, it's become something that we take for granted so much that we don't even really see it. So it's it's not even that we look at it and we think that it's cheap. It's that we don't even really see it. And that's that's disturbing because it, it does come with all of this really ugly baggage. Welcome to Cambridge Forum. I'm Mary Stack, and we have a very grave topic today, plastic and our toxic addiction to the stuff. Touted as the great invention for the harried housewife in the 1950s, it became synonymous with all that was clean and colorful and convenient. But then it became so cheap, it became a throwaway. And now about a hundred years down the road, we're seeing that the costs far outweigh the benefits. The price tag is the planet, the entire ecosystem, and human health. So what can we do about it? To help us understand what's really going on, we have with us today three very informed individuals. Veronique Greenwood, who is a science journalist, John Hosevar, who's a marine biologist and the Oceans Campaign Director for Greenpeace, and Dr. Roberto Lucchini, Professor of Occupational and Environmental Health, at Florida International University. So welcome to you all. So let's start with you, Veronique. You wrote a really interesting piece for The Globe this month entitled, Plastic Actually Isn't Cheap. What did you learn while you were researching this piece? Well, you know, I actually came to the problem with plastics because I'm a biology journalist. And, you know, you start to notice trends and the papers coming out and there started to be all these papers about microplastics in you know in corals and humans you know you often get this idea that the problem with plastics is, is what comes after we use the material but that's really only a tiny fraction of the problem and what i found when i went to go report this story was just how much the the production of plastic is the problem it's not what we do with it. Um, it's not really a choice that consumers are making consciously. It's its a, the making of plastic is the problem. So when I was um, reporting for the story, I was down in Louisiana and uh, in the part of the, the Mississippi River that was pretty much all uh, plantations worked by enslaved people until the end of the Civil War. It's between um, New Orleans and Baton Rouge. And Almost immediately. <laughs> it, it, there was really not a very long lag time. A lot of this land that had been worked as plantations came into the hands of petrochemical companies and plastics are, um, for the most part, uh, petrochemical products. So all of this land in between New Orleans and Baton Rouge is just thickly covered with plants that are making um, products, including stuff for making plastics and uh, ingredients for plastics. There are thousands and thousands of ingredients that go into plastics, and a lot of them are not um, not well characterized. Their effect on human health is not well understood. But the bizarre thing about actually being there was that that area is also full of people who live there <laughs> and whose ancestors have lived there for hundreds of years and who have communities, who have lives, who have history there. And yet these plants are built right up against their houses and you know there are there are a number there are a number of rules being broken here uh, but there's something about being there in person to see it that's shocking you know these factories that are making uh you know feedstock for making molded plastics like little tiny pebbles of plastics or plants that are making methanol which is another um, ingredient for plastics 
these plants for making materials that like that we fundamentally don't really need could be placed above the needs of people who have been living here for hundreds of years was really shocking. You know, you know that that's happening, but until you see it yourself, it's hard to really absorb the absurdity of it. Why would we give all of this up for something that we don't even need? So you said that once you learned about the science of plastic and the inherent risk, the pollution, the effect on human health, you said that it changes your view. You can never yeah. look at it the same. And you said it has been purposefully designed to be the fabric of our lives. And that's so true. I mean, Coke have the audacity to say that people want plastic bottles. I mean, I don't remember them ever asking, but um, so then people think, oh, yeah, we've got to have it. But you say, quote, move plastic out of the zone of the taken for granted, see it in front of you, allow yourself to feel the cost of this material, the crawfish, the graveyards, the homes of East Palestine, Ohio. Can you mm -hmm. speak a bit more about that? Yeah, I think one of the things that surprised me the most about when I was reporting this story is that I, uh, I, I talked to a sociologist who I've talked to before who studies how people um, assign value to objects and ideas. I was interested in talking to her because I thought this is this is sort of a plastic is such a strange material like we don't it has all of these costs, but we don't really feel them when we're holding something plastic and we're looking at something plastic. How do we decide that this is cheap and not expensive? And the thing that was most destabilizing from talking with her was that I didn't really get, I didn't get sort of an easy answer about, you know, about what, what made plastic cheap or expensive. The main thing that she shared with me that kind of shook me was, was, the, was how much plastic has been incorporated into the background of our lives. It's become something that we take for granted so much that we don't even really see it. So it's it's not even that we look at it and we think that it's cheap. It's that we don't even really see it. And that's that's disturbing because it, it does come with all of this really ugly baggage. So the the thing that that resonated the most with me was the, the feeling that if if we can bring plastic out of the background and make it be something that we actually see, we really see in kind of all its ugliness when we're looking at it. That's an incredibly powerful motivator because <laughs> I, I really believe in the power of disgust. Like I think that if you look at, you know, the plastic clamshell container on your berries and you feel the kind of visceral sense of like, this, why is this here? Like we used to be able to get berries in paper boxes and it was fine, you know? You know, when where I lived in China, you could even in rural in rural places, you could go out to the local restaurant and you'd get takeout in an enamel cup. Then you would bring back like it was not hard. It's it's not this is not necessary. Right. If you look at it and you see, you know, all the things that I saw, people's lives being just essentially paved over and polluted out of existence. And for what? For a, a blueberry clamshell? Like it's ridiculous. If, if you if you if you start to see that. You can't really unsee it. And I actually think that's really powerful. You know, I mean, the problem is not really consumer behavior. The problem is the behavior of the manufacturers. And it's a, this is an issue that's going to be solved through legislation. But I feel like legislation happens because there are enough of us who are grossed out by what's been fed to us. Certainly is being fed to us. So let's over, uh, move over to John um, from Greenpeace. You're the Oceans Campaign Director. So lots of people had, I guess, their first encounters with the plastic problem by, you know, swimming in tampons or seeing dead turtles trapped in the stuff. And it was horrific, you know, these very visceral images. But now, of course, it's a much bigger problem. 
So this week, UNEP, which is the UN Environmental Programme, they're having their negotiations in Paris for the Global Plastics Treaty. And you were very involved, I think, in in the initiative about turning off the tap, the tap of plastic, not water. Is that even feasible? It has to be. Um, (laughs) You know, this is one of those times where, similar to, we realized at some point that the gases that we're using in refrigerants were destroying the ozone layer and that was going to kill us all. So we, we stopped producing those. We banned most of those chemicals. We realized that asbestos wasn't just good at what we built it for, but it's also really good at killing people. And so we banned these things. This is where we are now with plastic. We realized that mistakes were made. Uh, some people, I think, understood this a really long time ago, but at this point, the science is pretty clear. It's hard to deny the fact that our reliance on plastic, especially so much throwaway plastic, has been a very serious mistake. So, okay, what are we going to do about it? It's pretty clear to me that we need to be moving away from plastic as quickly as we possibly can. And the way that we reduce plastic pollution is by reducing plastic production. It's that straightforward. Otherwise, we're not going to be successful. You can't just keep producing trillions of throwaway plastic items a year and expect that we're going to keep them out of the environment some way. It's not a problem that we can recycle our way out of. We, we really have to deal with this, as you said, turning off the tap. We have to, we have to tackle production. Just think about the fact that we have put so much plastic into our world that it became apparent to us that it was starting to kill whales and turtles and albatrosses. That's an enormous amount of plastic. On top of that, it's now in the air that we breathe, the water that we drink, the food that we eat. Uh, it's in the soil to the point where, you know, if you eat an apple, something that is maybe the ultimate symbol of, of a healthy thing to eat, there's probably plastic in the apple that was taken up through the roots out of the soil. Again, mistakes were made. You know, yes, there are people that should be held accountable for producing all this toxic mess. But the most important thing is what we do from here, whether we allow this to continue or whether we take the steps that are necessary. Do you think there's enough um, impetus in this body of people gathered in Paris to affect the kind of change necessary? I think so far, you know, the enormous and rapidly growing concern about plastic has been enough to force the world's governments to agree to negotiate a treaty. It is not yet enough to force them to negotiate a meaningful and effective treaty. We have some work ahead of us still. Fortunately, we have another year and a half or two before this treaty will actually be adopted. So at this point, the conversations are largely about procedural stuff. And that's, you know, they're wasting, frankly, they're wasting a lot of time. Uh, They haven't really even gotten to the substance yet, but that's going to start. So I think the most important thing is not where we are today, but where we can get to collectively by the end of next year. And that is going to require a little bit of help from all of us, I think. You know, I'm I'm thinking in my head about the trajectory of the climate talks and, uh, you know, how we've been dancing around that forever. You know, the 1.5 cap that doesn't ever seem to have been enforced by anybody. So Inga Anderson, who's the executive director of UNEP, this body that's meeting in Paris, 
was quoted in The Guardian saying, the way we use and dispose of plastic is polluting the ecosystems, it's creating all risks uh, for human health, and it's destabilizing the climate. So here we have the big issue. Since the fossil fuel industry is chiefly behind, well, they are behind plastic production. In fact, the 20 companies who produce over 50% of all single-use plastic are top three, ExxonMobil, Dow Chemical, and China's Sinopec. They're the three top offenders. They're scared of losing, losing their profits already from losing the fossil fuel um, addiction because people are now switching to electric cars. So here we have the same people who are causing global warming. They're also responsible for the plastification of the ocean. And these two factors are among the greatest threats, I think, to humanity right now. So what hope do we really have? I mean, it's almost like we've asked, you know, the fox to mind the chickens. <laughs> well, that's a really important point. And is the reason why the approach that the United States is taking right now is absolutely wrong. They are pushing for a treaty that is largely voluntary, that leaves it up to each country to develop national action plans. And the U.S. has been too scared to take on Exxon or Dow. But we know from, unfortunately, decades of experience that we can't rely on companies like Exxon and Dow to do the right thing. They will do what they're forced to do, and that's it. So we need a binding global treaty that is going to force these companies to do what is necessary instead of asking them politely and hoping that they volunteer to. That is not going to get it done. So just as the petrochemical industry did with global warming, they kind of put the onus on us. They're kind of doing the same thing, really, with plastic. They're saying it's our fault. So how do we shift the blame back to them and get them to pay for the cost of the cleanup? I think California has been able to do this just recently. It's passed legislation, right? That's right. I think people are starting to realize <laughs> that you know, the myth that they've been sold about plastic recycling for decades is is just that it's it's largely a myth we recycle maybe five percent of the plastic that we use and the rest of it is burned or thrown in landfills or ends up straight in the environment none of those are good options i mean the the, the fact is that once you produce all this plastic there's nothing good to do with it even the few types of plastic that might be recycled. We're really only talking about recycling it or downcycling it once, possibly twice. But after that, it's still going to end up in a landfill or an incinerator. So as people realize that, they're kind of coming to grips with the fact that uh, they've been liked and that the responsibility really is on corporations and on governments to hold corporations accountable and actually protect the health of our communities. So I read a statistic today that said 6.3 billion tons of plastic, which have been produced since 1930, 9% of that has ever been recycled. And Mindaroo uh, Foundation say that if we change our throwaway mentality to reuse and recycle, we can create this thing called a circular plastic economy. So can you explain what that means? And also, the fact that you were quoted as saying, we can't recycle our way out of this problem, nor should we. So 
You know, I think the circular economy is a great concept. Uh, recycling is important. We need to recycle things that make sense to recycle. Uh, we absolutely have to recover and recycle aluminum, for example. Uh, it makes no sense to just keep trying to mine more and more aluminum when you can recycle it over and over and over again. Plastic is not like that. There's no market because there's no value for most types of plastic. And even when we do recycle plastic, it comes at a cost. We just released a report that demonstrated some of the pretty serious toxic concerns in recycled plastic. Um, there are a bunch of different ways that toxic chemicals end up in recycling streams. So you definitely don't want this in your packaging that's holding the food that you eat or the or your drinks. You know, I, I think this is something that people are really just starting to understand, unfortunately. But it really does underscore the fact that not only can we not recycle our way out of this, but even if we tried to increase recycling, it's going to have a real cost in terms of human health impacts. So now we all feel really depressed because, you know, we're doing our little recycling thing. We think we're doing our bit for the environment. Should we just not bother with the recycling of our plastic? Is it a waste of time? There, like I said, there really aren't any great answers. Once you make this plastic stuff, it's going to hurt us. It's going to hurt the environment. It's going to hurt the climate. Um, the problem has already been created and there's there's no great solution. So I think for most plastics, absolutely, it makes more sense to, well, let's just say, like, let's not make them. That's the answer. But once they're already made, most of the time, it's better to, for them to end up in a landfill than to put them in a recycling bin. And they're just going to have to be sorted out before you can recycle things that are actually recyclable. And then the actual process of recycling, just the breaking down of that, it's not good, right? That's right. There was a, another recent study that just showed how much microplastics are produced by the process of recycling and how much of that goes directly down the drain in, in wastewater. And then the fruit that you were talking about earlier, that's because microplastics are in sewage sludge. Microplastics and microfibers and uh, nanoplastics. So they just keep breaking down into smaller and smaller pieces. And in many ways, that makes them more dangerous. Um, some of the plastic microfibers can migrate through cell walls. So you see them moving through human organs. And one of the big problems with plastic is that it's cumulative. So as bad as the situation is today, every new bit of plastic that we produce just adds on to that. And that's why it's reached the point where everyone is starting to realize, oh, we have a problem. It's because we've produced so much, it's accumulated to the point where we see it everywhere. All that's going to still be here next year. The question is whether we want to keep adding to it or not. Okay, Roberto. So we've looked at the impact of the plastic production, its disposal, it's being deposited in the ocean, in the air, generally in the ecosystem. Now we're becoming much more aware that there are terrible effects that microplastics are having on all aspects of human life. That's right. It, it, it can damage, it can be important at, at every stage from uh, early life to the adults and the elderly because of different vulnerabilities, susceptibilities, etc. So basically, we, are, we already mentioned what the problems are. Uh, there is a kind of this important point of the 
microplastic structure per se, microfraction and nano, etc. The dimension is always very important in our field. Whatever we breathe, ingest, etc. The smaller, the, I mean, the worse, because uh, it can be transferred everywhere in our body. So uh, the degradation, etc. This is an important point, but it's not the only one because then, uh, of course, there are all the additives. The additives, phthalates, bisphenols, organophosphates, flame retardants, these are all additives in plastic and, uh, you know, and they're needed. And Veronique, I think she, she mentioned that in the beginning. So I, there's a multiple components in this big mixture in reality. Nowadays, the, the, uh, our disciplines in the occupational environmental health, toxicology is absolutely shifting from uh, let's study lead, let's study mercury, let's study one by one. I grew up with this. I was in Italy and my school and European schools, but also in the US, there was this type of approach. Now, of course, more and more, what are we doing is uh, approaching the mixture, the interactions, because there's so many components and we are understanding using big data and all this uh, uh, more uh, complex, sophisticated uh, statistical models that are more and more able to incorporate all these components at once because their interaction can damage. Maybe one, but individually they may not, but in the end of the day, when you have so many components into the microplastic uh, environment, let's say, uh, we really need to try to understand what, what is the mixture effect as well. So it's really a, a difficult job. Of course, we always have to think that technically there's a complexity into all these issues, okay? And so uh, we really need a scientist to keep working because it's our job and we have to try to figure this out uh, and, and deliver our results to the society, basically. Uh, and uh, and so there's, there are terrible problems in terms of potential exposure into the air, into the soil, into the water, into the uh, vegetables, etc. I don't want to be too <laughs> depressing into this, but it's definitely very important to try to tackle all these details and put them together it's a complexity that we need to be able to address and, and try to understand, disentangle all the components and see what the impact is. Because talking about cancer, different type of cancer, leukemia, lymphoma, neurotoxicity, endocrine dis disorder, mm. uh, reduced fertility, and then all the kids, the premature birth, low birth rate, asthma, child leukemia, neurodevelopmental disorder, like, you know, impact on cognition and cognitive abilities and I, it's really there's really a complexity into into this but definitely the data are there i think that the next steps is also to focus not only as i was saying on the data given by individual component but the interaction the interaction also with the higher temperature what happens when you have an exposure to something and now you also have a co-exposure to increase temperature What's the result of this? Well, this is you another worked, uh, quite a lot with 9-11, the 9-11 disaster, right? But didn't you do some research on the effect on the workers that were connected with that? 
Yeah, definitely. I, I've been in New York for eight years. This is such an important example of uh, something like this. The tower collapsed, you know, 9-11, huge toxic clouds with a myriad of components, chemicals, and also psychological trauma, of course, in that case. But again, the interaction between all these components can have a devastating effect on, on people's health. And so this is our job now to look really, I think, into all these uh, interaction between all these complexities of, of the components. It's, the term microplastic in reality is kind of a different umbrella. Uh, yeah. umbrella exactly. Mm -hmm. Let's say umbrella. So I, I've been tracking this, of course, in the press and, you know, sort of a few months ago, they were talking about it first appearing that there's a new disease now in birds, plastiosis. These small fragments go into the digestive tract of birds and they cause such inflammation they can't eat. And then the next thing I read, they had found it in breast milk and blood. I think we have no chance because there's no way of reversing this and there's no way of stopping it. It's just, I mean, mothers are feeding their children out of plastic bottles. The water's in plastic bottles. Often the catheters and the syringes you get in hospital that we thought were so wonderful, they're plastic. They're leaching now into you. How do you rewind the clock and take it out? It's, it's a mammoth. I mean, production is where we need to start, I think to stop the production, but I don't know how fast we can do that because we've got this terrible dependency on it. We think we can't live without it. Okay, let's look around the world. Who's doing the best job in tackling this? You know, a lot of times in the US we hear, oh, well, but even if we did better here, you're never gonna see the kind of changes that we need in Africa or Asia. And in fact, Many African countries have been ahead of us uh, in getting rid of several types of plastic. There were over 20 countries that banned plastic bags, and that's something that we haven't managed to do yet. France has came out reasonably early in promoting reuse and is starting to ban several single-use items. India made some big decisions about Banning single-use plastic, how well they'll actually implement those, I think, still remains to be seen. The European Union is, as often the case on environmental issues, quite a bit ahead of the United States. But pretty much everywhere in the world at this point, you're seeing conversations at some level, whether it's cities or states or countries that are, you know, certainly banning straws, but banning plastic bags or starting to ban things like cutlery and plates. They're putting in new restrictions on the kinds of materials that can be used for takeout packaging. And then less common, but it is starting, we're seeing more incentivizing of reuse and refill, which is, I think, the future. The, the best case is not just that we replace all this throwaway plastic with some other single-use material, but we you know, rethink the way that we've been doing this for a while. It's not like we don't know what the solutions are. I mean, my grandparents would be horrified to see how far we've come from the way that they were brought up. I mean, they reused everything. Like when I would visit them as a kid, they reused everything. And um, 
I think some of the opportunities that we have now are sort of high tech and we can track things better and really cool new opportunities to have people return return containers to a different facility and it would still be tracked back and they could get credit. But a lot of it is sort of back to the future. I mean, we, we did just fine without all this throwaway plastic, most of human existence. All right. Well, um, I felt that this was an extremely enlightening discussion with you people today. You have been all wonderfully gracious and sharing your time and your knowledge. So thank you to Veronique Greenwood, John Hosevar, and Dr. Roberto Lucchini. Cambridge Forum is made possible through the generosity of Herbert and Dorothy Vetter, the Lowell Institute, Mass Cultural Council, Cambridge Community Foundation, and of course, all of you. So if you want to donate or sign up to our list, please visit the website, cambridgeforum.org. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope to see you all soon.